0: What is the greatest compliment you've ever received? I mean, the nicest thing anybody has ever said about you. Have you ever thought about that? I think athletically, the nicest thing anybody's ever said about me was somebody on the other team during a basketball game said, will somebody please get on that white boy? Um, I was pretty excited that he said that about me, right? Uh, Academically, the the best compliment I've ever received is when I was a a senior in college, I was the recipient of the D. Philip Roberts Award in Upper Division Bible. But uh, overall, if I think the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me, uh, my in-laws are here this week, Steve and Sue Reeves. And uh, before I asked Stephanie to marry me, I talked to them to uh, ask for their blessing in asking her that. And so, you know, I I gave my little prepared speech, my spiel about, you know, I I love your daughter and, you know, I want to do what's right for her and she's great for me spiritually and all these sorts of things. And uh, there was a pause and Steve said, well, we've been expecting this. And he let it hang for a moment. Uh, And then you can ask him, but I'm pretty sure what he said next was, and we'd be glad for you to marry our daughter. Now, it isn't just what these people said, it's who said it, right? It was the best player on the other team, who was a lot better basketball player than me, who said that about my basketball ability, Uh, this A Bible award was voted on by the Bible professors in a a blind vote to decide who was going to win this award. And it was my father-in-law, the one who's giving away his daughter, who said that about me, that he'd be glad for me to marry his daughter. Well, imagine, imagine for a moment that Jesus Christ, Jesus himself said of you, of all the people born of women... No one is greater than you. Could there be a better compliment than that? Well, that is exactly what Jesus said about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11. Thank you for being here this morning. And I see a few who are visiting with us. We're so grateful for your presence. Thank you for being here. And I hope the things that we think about and discuss this morning will be glorifying to God, that he will be pleased with the things that we do and say, but even more that it might bring us closer to him and closer to what he would have us to be. And I want us to think for a few more moments this morning about John the, the Baptist and what true greatness is. Now we're going to look in Matthew chapter 11 here in just a few moments, but we're actually going to start by going back to Luke chapter 1. So turn to Luke chapter 1 with me if you would. Luke chapter 1. And what I want to show is, with John the Baptist, it's not just that Jesus said this of him, but even from before his birth, there was this expectation that John the Baptist was going to be a great man, and a great man uh, in terms of his service to God. Before his birth, John was destined for greatness. And if we're there in Luke chapter 1, if we see there in verse 5, we see that that when it comes to his family, he was destined for greatness. He was, he was of the tribe of Levi on both sides. And on both sides, he was of the family of Aaron, where the, the high priest would come from. And if we keep looking there in verses uh, 6 and 7, his parents, Elizabeth and Zacharias, were righteous people. But notice what it says in verse 7. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both... Well, advanced in years. Well, that reminds us of some characters from the Old Testament, doesn't it? Especially Abraham and Sarah. This idea of her being barren and advanced in years. Well, somebody pretty special must be coming from them, and John the Baptist is going to be born to them. We see that Zacharias is actually serving in the temple itself in Luke chapter 1. He's not just a priest. He's a priest who gets to go into the temple and do these things in the temple. And while he's there serving, an angel of the Lord appears to him. And he has this vision of the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel tells him that he's going to have a son and all of the wonderful things that this son is going to do. And if we drop down to uh, verse 64 through 66 of Luke chapter 1. we see that ultimately John is born to this family. And what does the text say in verse 64? Zacharias didn't believe the angel at first, and so he is struck mute. This miracle is worked. And in verse 64, after he writes on a tablet, his name is John, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came upon all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. So everybody in the whole country, apparently, heard about these things and they wondered to themselves, this child is going to be somebody special. And in verses 67 through 80, his father, Zacharias, is inspired by the Holy Spirit and he makes these prophecies about John and who John was going to be and the things he was going to accomplish for God and great multitudes knew of these things. And so John grows up And if we go to John chapter 1, the gospel of John in the first chapter, even the Jewish rulers of this time in the first century, they thought to themselves, this John guy, he must be some kind of messianic figure. In John chapter 1, notice beginning in verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Well, that's not a question that you just ask anybody. They, they knew he was somebody special. They wanted to figure out who exactly this was. And so he confessed, verse 20. And he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. Now, why did he answer that way? Because some people thought he might be. He might be the Messiah. He might be the Christ. He might be the one that we've been waiting on for 2,000 years. And so they ask him, verse 21, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not, not in the way they were asking. Are you the prophet? Again, a prophet like Moses and all of those prophecies that are messianic in nature. And he answered and said, no. Then they said to him, who are you? They're like, give us an answer. Who are you? that we might give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now, ironically, um, if we think about all of these expectations of greatness, maybe this is what we would have expected Of the Messiah of Jesus himself you know that the angel to appear to somebody a priest in the temple and all of the multitudes to find out about it and and this miracle to be worked and everybody through the whole country saying this baby is going to be something born of a barren woman who's got this great reputation and yet we compare John with Jesus just based on these expectations John was far greater But may I suggest this morning that all of these expectations and all of these things that we see about him and who he was going to be, those were not really the things that made him great. At least not in the eyes of God. The greatness of John the Baptist is actually seen in some other things. And I I want us to think about the greatness of John the Baptist this morning. And if we can see John's greatness the way God sees it. If we can see what truly made him great, it's going to do three things for us. Now, this morning I'm going to have one main point about what greatness is. But if we can see John's greatness as God sees it, it's going to do a couple of other things for us as well. So one main point and then a couple of secondary points to build off of that. Number one, the greatness of John the Baptist shows what greatness really looks like. Greatness is found in a number of things. And so now if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus pays John this great compliment, we see where greatness is found. Read with me, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, as they departed, verse 7, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John. Now, down in verse 11, remember, he's going to say, Nobody greater born among among women than John. But what does he say first? Well, verse 7. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Now the answer to that question is no. That's not what we went out to see. We didn't go out to the wilderness there by the Jordan River to see the reeds shaken by the wind. But what is Jesus' point in asking that question? Well, I think what he's doing is he's showing where greatness is found. And greatness is found in the fact that John was not this reed. Now, I grew up in West Texas. We didn't have a lot of reeds. We didn't have a lot of marshes or swamps. But we've got reeds in this area, right? And we think about a reed, and the wind blows really hard. What happens? The reed moves everywhere. And in fact, if it blows hard enough, what's going to happen? It's going to break off. And John is just the opposite of that. What we see with John is his greatness is found in the fact that he is, that he is rooted and grounded that he is solid and stable, that he is not easily swayed, he is not easily broken. We might say, to go along with uh, our congregational focus, that he is rooted and grounded in the faith. John was somebody who had great conviction. He knew God's will, he lived God's will, he preached God's will. And because of that, he was somebody who was solid. He was not driven and tossed by every wind of doctrine. He knew what was right, and he strived always to do what was right. And that's where greatness is found. But it's not just found in this solidity, being rooted and grounded. If we keep reading in verses 8 through 10, I want to suggest that it's also found in in focusing on your spiritual purpose. And that's exactly what John did, verse 8. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your faiths who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater Than John the Baptist. John was someone who chose this life without a lot of physical ease or comfort. Why? Because that was the life God called him to. John wasn't worried about physical ease, he was not focused on establishing a a physical kingdom on earth or being a king himself. Ironically, with his birth, with his family, with the expectations of greatness that were on him for an early age, it would have been very easy for John, far easier than most people in the ancient world, to actually live an easy life. To be a priest himself with all of the blessings that came with the priesthood, he could have lived the easiest life that was available to people in the ancient world. He could have been one who had soft clothing and a comfortable place to stay. But in so doing, he would not have fulfilled God's purpose for his life. John the Baptist had a spiritual mission. And he was laser focused on fulfilling God's purpose for him. So greatness is found in these two things right here in our text. But we also see this idea of greatness being found in some other things that relate to John's character. I, I want you to turn to John chapter 1 again. John chapter 1, and we're going to pick up in the text uh, kind of where we left off a moment ago. They come and they question him about all of these things. Who are you? And notice notice what he says Beginning in verse 24, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize, if you are not Christ, nor Elijah, nor the Prophet? And and John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is prefer- preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Uh, And then, if we drop down to chapter 3 and verse 27. John answered some of his disciples and this dispute about, well, Jesus is is getting more disciples than you and those sorts of things. And John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Now, please notice verse 30. He, Jesus, must increase. I, John the Baptist, must decrease. What an attitude. What an attitude from one of the greatest men who ever Lived. It's not about me. It's not about my greatness. It's about Jesus. It's about Christ. And the funny thing is, it is that attitude that made him great. Oh, oh, that we all had that same kind of attitude that I must decrease and he must increase. Jesus can and will make us great if that is our attitude in terms of our relationship with Him. Uh, I love what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I, me, Reagan, I must decrease my will, my desires, what I, what I think I need in this life, that must all decrease, and He must increase to the point where it can be said that Christ lives in me and Christ's desires are my desires. Um, there's some songbooks there in the pew. Would, would you take out the songbook for just a second? Turn to, turn to number 431 in your songbook. 431. We're not going to sing this. Uh, my voice is clearly ready to lead a song this morning. No, we're not going to sing this, but I want you to see these words. Um, this is a neat little song, and it's the idea of none of self and all of thee, but it starts with this idea of I'm just full of myself, and, and frankly, that's where most of us are. We're, we're full of ourselves and, and what we want, what we desire. That's where we are outside of Christ. But in order to come to Christ, in order to be made great by him, we have to empty ourselves of, of ourselves. And fill ourselves with him. Notice just the last couple of verses. Verse 3. Day by day his tender mercy. Healing, helping, full and free. Brought me lower while I whispered. Less of self and more of thee. Verse 4. Higher than the highest heaven. Deeper than the deepest sea. Lord, thy love at last has conquered None of self and all of thee. You know, we don't normally think about love in those terms, do we? Love, Lord, thy love at last has conquered. But that's exactly what Jesus' love can do for us and to us. Jesus' love has to conquer us totally. And completely. There can be no strongholds left in our heart when we see His love and what He has done for us. We should be motivated to empty ourselves to where it is none of self and all of Thee. So greatness is found in humility and submission to Christ, but it's also found in this idea of suffering for righteousness' sake. Go back there to Matthew chapter 11 again. Notice what we read in verse 2 of Matthew 11. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, John was in prison, and and we're not told here the reason for it, but if we go up a couple of chapters, we see the reason why he was in prison. If you go to, uh, it says 13 on the board, go to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John the Baptist and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Uh, you don't have a right to be married to this woman. She's your brother's wife. And although he wanted to put him to death, verse 5, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her, and he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought out on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. This was a vile outcome from vile People and this is where john's story on earth is going to end, but in Matthew chapter eleven, he is still in prison and and I read from chapter thirteen, not just to tell you how this is going to end, but to tell you the kind of people that were putting him in prison. He was in prison at a fortress or palace uh, called Marcus in the lesser known uh, other side of the Dead Sea of Herod's other palace, Masada is on the west side and uh, Marcarus is on the east. Um, You can see here uh, on this picture, this hill right here is where that palace and fortress was. You can see the Dead Sea right here behind it in the picture. Uh, On the map, Masada is the one that we normally know about. Uh, Makarras is here on the east side of the Dead Sea. And it was actually a strategic location where you could signal Masada and Alexandrium at the same time from there. And where John the Baptist likely was uh, at this time, this is a reconstruction, an artist's rendition over that hill. He was probably in a dungeon somewhere down here in the lower city, uh, beneath the wall in all likelihood. And knowing the kind of people who had him in prison... How do you imagine he was treated? Not well, obviously. We know that he was isolated. He was alone. Only allowed the occasional visitors. And it was because he chose to do what's right instead of saying silent that he suffered in this way. Jesus opens his discourse of, of his kingdom and citizens of his kingdom in Matthew chapter 5 By saying the truly blessed people are those who patiently suffer for righteousness' sake. And that's exactly what John was doing here. He was great because of his willingness to suffer for doing right. And where was John's focus at this time? Well, maybe we say, where would mine be? If I was in prison like this, I'd probably be feeling pretty sorry for myself. But I want to suggest this morning that, that one of the things that made John so great is that his focus was still on pointing others to Christ. And, and this is the last thing I want us to point out from Matthew chapter 11. Turn back there, Matthew chapter 11. We read um, verses 2 through 5. And, and I want to read verses 2 and 3 again. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples And said to him, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. Why did John send these disciples to ask this question? Well, we might say, well, even great men have moments of weakness, and he just wasn't sure. He wasn't sure if Jesus was the Christ or not. Spurgeon says of these verses, dark thoughts may come to the bravest, when pinned up in a narrow cell. And while that's true, I don't think that's what's happening here in this text. When did John send the disciples? Back there in verse two, when he heard about the works of Christ. When he heard about the miracles Jesus was working, the, the sermons he was preaching, and that wouldn't have caused him to doubt Instead, that would have bolstered and encouraged his faith. It would have caused him to belief, to confirm that belief. And remember, this is the same man who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the same man who, when Jesus came to him to be baptized, said, I should be coming to you to be baptized, not you to me. For that matter, this was the man who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to where he leapt in the womb when he was still a baby. I think, I can't prove this, but I think that John was sending these disciples to Jesus, not for his benefit, but for theirs. We know, we know that there was some jealousy and conflict between some of John's disciples and Jesus' disciples. In fact, just a couple of chapters earlier in Matthew chapter 19, John's disciples come questioning Jesus, just like the Pharisees and scribes. And so what we see is that John sends them to Jesus and Jesus says, you go back and you tell John the things that you see and hear, the very things that John had already heard about. And the fact is, most ancient commentators understood this whole exercise with John and his disciples to be for the disciples' benefit. Uh, Chrysostom, Origen, Jerome, Ambrose, Augustine, they all held that view. And, and that doesn't make it right, but it shows that this is what people have long thought about this passage. John was great because he wasn't focused on himself. He wasn't focused on his own problems and the things that were wrong in his life. He was focused on Christ. And pointing others to Christ. What if we did the same thing? What if we viewed every heartbreak, every disappointment, every sorrow, everything that we suffered in this life, what if we viewed it as an opportunity to show and proclaim Christ to others? Being in prison allowed John to point his disciples to Jesus as the one that they should be following. Instead of him. And so greatness is found in these areas. In these five ways and more. But this is a good list of how we see the greatness of John. Are are we seeking to be great this same way? I hope that we are. And we could end the lesson there. But I think seeing the greatness of John does something else for us that's even more powerful. Uh, We could make these same points about being rooted and grounded and focusing on the spiritual. We could could make these same points from lots of other people. But this isn't really the point that Jesus was making in Matthew chapter 11. It wasn't just an exercise of, well, John's great. You need to be like John so that you can be great too. Instead, what Jesus is doing, what Matthew is doing in preserving these words of Jesus, and what we see the New Testament writers do on a number of occasions— is say this is how great John was, and if he was this great, let me use his greatness to emphasize how two other things are even greater than him. Now, I think we understand that concept that a lot of times we can only see something's greatness when we, when we compare it to something else that we know about. Um, this is kind of a negative example, but, but we, we know about hurricanes here. Uh, If I were to say, you know, there's a hurricane that's coming and there's going to be some major, terrible flooding, what what would your reaction to that be? Well, maybe we got some PTSD from floods and so forth, but we'd, we'd probably say something like, well, we've been through lots of hurricanes before, we can get through this one too. But what if I were to say there's a hurricane coming and the flooding could possibly be worse than Hurricane Harvey? Well, now all of a sudden we would take that even more seriously, wouldn't we? I I know how bad Hurricane Harvey was. If this is even worse, it must be really, really bad. Well, that kind of argumentation is found throughout Judaism, extra biblical literature, the Old Testament, but even more in the New Testament. Paul does that all the time. The Hebrew writer does that all the time. And that's exactly what we find here in the Gospels as well. John is awesome. He is great. And if you can see how great he is, let me tell you about two other things that are even greater. The greatness of John the Baptist shows the greatness of Christ. As great as John was, he understood rightly. He viewed himself as nothing next to Christ. I I think the perfect place to illustrate this is in Mark chapter 1. Would you turn there with me? Mark chapter 1. Notice the beginning in verse 4. Mark chapter 1 and verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, and please notice the next phrase, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. John didn't view himself as worthy to untie, untie excuse me, untie the sandal of Jesus. And, and that's somewhat of an odd reference, right? Well, what does that have to do with anything, untying somebody's sandal? Well, let me ask you, in this day, in this culture, if you were untying somebody's sandal, what were you doing? You say, well, I know, taking their sandal off. That's right. Why would you take off somebody's sandal? In this culture somebody said it to wash their feet to wash their feet did you know under Jewish law you can make your Jewish slave you make your Gentile slave do whatever you wanted Uh, that was extra biblical right but under Jewish law you could make your Jewish slave do just about anything you wanted them to do but there was one thing one activity that they viewed as so degrading that you couldn't even make your Jewish slave do it. And that was washing the feet of people who came in. You could ask them to do it. You you could suggest strongly, but you couldn't make them do it. This was the lowest activity reserved for the lowest of slaves. And John doesn't say, you know, I'm not even worthy to wash Jesus' feet. He says, he doesn't say I'm not worthy to take his sandal off. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal so that I can take it off so that I might wash his feet. And so Jesus says, there's no one born among women greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, Jesus is so much greater than me, I'm not even worthy to wash his feet. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how great Christ is. And yet, we think about this lowest, most demeaning job. And what did this great Jesus do? He stooped down and washed feet himself. Turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. On the night he was betrayed. In verse 2, Supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded drop down to verse 12 so when he had washed their feet taken his garments and sat down again he said to them do you know what i have done to you you call me teacher and lord and you say well for so i am if i then your lord and teacher have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus washed their feet. And you say, well, that's his apostles. That's his closest friends. Of course, he'd be willing. You know who was still there when he washed the feet? Judas, his betrayer. He washed Judas' feet. What an example for us. This is how you serve. This is meekness. I have the the power. I am a master, but I serve. And if I serve, that means you should serve too because you are not greater than me. You also ought to wash one another's feet. Now that word ought there, Uh, That obscures the meaning just a little bit when we think about it in English. That word ought in the Greek is a word for obligation, indebtedness. Ought equals must. You must wash one another's feet. You must. You must have this willing service in your heart and in your life. And a willingness to give for others is what our God is like the willingness to give and suffer for the sake of others is at the heart of who our God is. This is how much greater Jesus is than John. And if you want to see a picture of Jesus' greatness, this, this is the picture that should come to mind. And then finally, turn back to Matthew chapter 11 one more time. We never finished reading verse 11. Let's do so now. Jesus says... Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, that he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The greatness of John the Baptist finally shows the greatness of Christ's kingdom. The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than, than John the Baptist. And you say, "Well, that can't be right because I know myself. I'm not greater than John." But what is it that what is it that Jesus is really saying here? I like the way Morris puts it. If it is surprising that John was the greatest man who ever lived, it is even more surprising that he is least that that he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus was not denigrating John but bringing out the wonder of being in the kingdom. Great though he was, John the Baptist belonged to the old order. You know, I I struggle sometimes. It's sad because this is what I'm supposed to do. You know, this is what I do for a living, right? This is my calling. I'm supposed to be a preacher. I'm supposed to be able to communicate these things. I struggle. I struggle communicating the greatness of God's kingdom. I struggle communicating what it means to be in that kingdom. But if I can see the greatness of John, then maybe I'm a little closer to communicating how great it is to be in Christ's kingdom. I, with all of my imperfections, I've never suffered like John. I've never been as faithful as John in that sense, but I... I am made greater than John and you can be too by my citizenship in the kingdom of Christ. As a kingdom citizen, I am offered a more complete salvation, a closer fellowship with God, a far greater mediator and a clearer hope. But I think what Jesus had in mind specifically is that we are also given a greater knowledge and understanding of the plan of God than even John the Baptist, what God has revealed to us. In Luke's account, Jesus emphasizes that John was the greatest prophet who ever lived, of all of God's prophets. But the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why? Because we see all of God's plan brought to fruition. And Jesus' initial response to John is exactly the kind of greatness and power that's available to all this morning. Look there in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 5. The blind, what? See. The lame, walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf, hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor, what would you think if the same pattern followed? The poor are made rich. That's not what he says. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Because hearing and responding to the gospel is where true riches and true greatness are found. And that's available. It's available to all who are willing to come and, like John, submit themselves to Christ and his greatness And if you're willing to have that same attitude of heart and mind this morning, you can be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. And we call you to do that now while together we stand and while we sing.